personal brand is unbelievably important in today's world because social media is not just this place where we communicate with with each other. It's the current state of the internet. And when you talk about social media, like it's the current state of the internet, you have to change your mindset because then you realize that, oh, everything that's going through the internet is going through these channels. All your news, all the products, all the monetization, the marketing, all the power is going to people with brands. So if you can maintain it, it's almost a guaranteed formula for you know, some kind of feedback on whatever you want to produce into the world. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax. Let's take the edge off. Grab a nice glass of bourbon and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Happiness equals wealth plus health, plus deep relationships. That's the ultimate life formula, according to today's Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon guest, Max Wojcik. If this is your first time listening, I'm James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth, an independent wealth management firm. And on this show, I chat with guests about wealth building, innovation, and life, with the occasional pour of bourbon mixed in for good measure. Our discussion today breaks down the 24 variables Max has identified as contributing to our happiness. When I first came across Max's work on the subject, I was intrigued by his formulaic, mathematical, and logical approach to defining happiness. Our conversation is wide-ranging, covering subjects like the importance of a personal brand, stoic philosophy, eating natural foods, and the power of compounding in investing and in life. Max is an engineer by degree with an emphasis on biomedical technologies and entrepreneurship. He owns an online publishing company that helps content creators combine and repurpose their content into books, expanding their audiences. He authored the first TikTok content-based book titled What to Risk, and he's a content creator himself. He can be found on most major social channels by the handle Maximus to himself. Grab a pen and paper. You're going to want to take notes. Enjoy. Hey, Max, welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. I came across your work on Twitter and uh, then kind of quickly made my way to your blogs and was intrigued, I would say, with with some of the things you were posting about. A lot of similar ideas, but I would say a, a little bit different perspective on some of those ideas that I might have. And um, so I just decided to reach out and see if you wanted to chat. And I think it's going to be really interesting because I've kind of gone through some of the things you've done, some of the things you've, you've written, and I think we'll have a, have a good conversation about a lot of those topics, some of which I normally talk on this show about, things related to money and wealth and things like that, and then maybe go off on some other directions and get into, get into some other things, talk about AI or, or you know who, who knows what. We're, we'll just see where it goes. So this is probably the less scripted uh, uh, or least scripted show I've done so far. So I'm excited for that conversational element. Perfect. Well, the, uh, you know, the thing that really caught my eye when I was looking at your blog was a post that you kind of had stickied 
to the top. And that was the ultimate life formula. And on this show and and just in general, I've, you know, I've had the pleasure of talking to a lot of people, a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs, a lot of um, successful investors, things of that nature. And one of the questions I always ask, usually at the end of this show is, you know, what does wealth mean to you? And I've seen over the over the years and throughout these discussions, a lot of themes, you know, you, you get a lot of stuff about personal freedom, uh, freedom of time and freedom of thought and being able to work on meaningful things and, um, you know, being able to spend time with family and friends and um, all of those things, which I think kind of uh, is a testament to the fact that we're all kind of looking for for similar things in a lot of ways. But I've never seen anyone kind of approach happiness in the way that you did in that blog post. And and that was kind of a formulaic, more mathematical, logical approach. And I want to get deep into that here in a bit and kind of actually just go through that kind of step-by-step and and have you explain how you came up with it and the different variables and and what they mean to you. But also, I know that you're big on personal uh, kind of routines, daily routines and habits and things like that. Um, and I am as well. I'm always intrigued with how people kind of think about organizing their life and their days. Um, so I thought that'd be a fun place to start. Um, what is your daily habit looking like these days or your daily routine? So my daily routine right now is really... Um, so I'm someone like I think when we first started talking, we talked about stoicism, right? So I'm someone who follows Ryan Holiday, who's probably the biggest advocate for stoicism uh, that exists on the internet today. And he is somebody who, if you listen to people talk about him or him in interviews or anything that anyone that's ever interacted with Ryan is, he is very, very routine oriented and he really walks the walk from what he does, right? So I try to base my schedule off of kind of the way he does things. And so it's like, get up. 5.30, 6 in the morning, dog out, typical daily health stuff, right? When I when I think about my mornings, I think about priming or when I think about, when I, th- when I say priming, I'm really referring to how Tony Robbins sees uh, how his mornings go. So I'm, I'm kind of dropping two names already. Ryan Holiday, for those listeners who don't know. He's up the Daily Stoic, right? Yeah, he's a yeah. best-selling author of five or six books uh, in marketing, stoicism, and now he talks a bunch about, uh, his most recent book was Courage is Calling. Um, and then Tony Robbins is probably the world's best performance coach. He's worked with Oprah Winfrey to Bill Clinton to all kinds of incredible people. And he breaks down things when he says, before you do anything important, your state really matters. So like how you feel emotionally, how you feel physically matters. And then the story you tell yourself really matters before you approach the strategies of doing something. So my morning is all about priming. So it's let the dog out, let myself think. The second I get back inside, it's either I'm immediately on a journal and I'm taking notes or I'm, I'm doing a brainstorm question that I gave myself the night before, which is a really, really useful tool. If, if you've ever journaled before, uh, if anyone's ever interested in journaling out there, I always recommend people to start is before you go to sleep, write down a question. And then every morning, just answer that question when your mind's blank. Uh, really good brainstorming trick. So I'll either do that or immediately go into a workout and uh, I'm dropping a bunch of books, and a bunch of information right away. But how my workout goes is if anyone's ever read or any of your listeners ever read Own the Day, Own Your Life by, uh, by Aubrey Marcus, uh, he goes through a 50-minute workout, right, which talks about, you know, resistance training, stretching, cardio, strength, and power. So, like, different kinds of things, different exercises that are associated with that. So, again, into physical exercise, making sure I feel fit, making sure I feel healthy. Then it's usually a longer run with my dog because I have a really young Beagle Husky mix. So, he is incredibly energetic. And if I don't run him excessively in the morning, he's a pain throughout my workday. Uh, so we'll run. And on, my, on that run or on that trip, usually I have a podcast going. 
And more often than not, it's Tim Ferriss's podcast. But other times it'll be Kevin Rose. Uh, sometimes it'll be James Altucher. Sometimes it'll be an interview that's going on. Um, but those Tim Ferriss is definitely the main one. Once I'm done with that morning routine, it's usually off to the library where I'll write for about four or five hours. I just finished the first TikTok-based book. That was like a short three-week project I wanted to test. That was fun. Uh, but I'm working on a bigger book right now that's all about how I, I'm testing this hypothesis that in today's world, you can basically found a side hustle, a business, or even some of these crazy loon shot companies in just a matter of a few days. Because um, really, we have the communication tools, we have all the automation software, all the stuff that you need to really start a business exists in the cloud. Um, so you can do so many of these things in a very, very short period of time. And it's just getting people past that first hump. Uh, that's important. Yeah. So it's about four hours of writing for that. And then after that, it's kind of the rest of my day. Right now, I'm working like my startup or like my business right now is a publishing company that works specifically with content creators. And we're trying like how it started was I hate waste. And I love good information. I love good material. I got notebooks filled in my office and I fill a notebook probably once every two months. And there's incredible content creators that exist on Instagram, that have podcasts, that have YouTube channels, that have TikTok channels, that have all these different kinds of social medias that they don't have all that data aggregated into one place like a lot of really good books do. And so that was kind of my approach to it was I, I wanted all these content creators to put it in a book where I could have it physically and I could have all that stuff instead of taking my own notes. And the first person to take it was Jesse Eckel. If I don't know if you've ever heard of who Jesse Eckel is. I don't think so. Uh, Jesse Eckel is a YouTuber that recently got probably in the last 18 months of two years, he really started to explode on YouTube. Uh, when COVID hit, he lost his job as a wedding photographer. And he was kind of predicting he'd make around $100,000 in that year uh, when COVID hit. And then every, everything went flat. Every client bailed, every client pulled out, and his business immediately went, you know, kaput. And so once that happened, he said, you know, I'm unemployed. He had five kids. He wanted to figure out what he was going to do. So he wanted to approach this online entrepreneurship world, mainly in the world of e-commerce and personal branding. So social media content creation. Um, and he went from $0, literally $0, to over $1.5 in 18 months. And his YouTube channel grew from 0 to over 200,000 subscribers in about that same time period, even probably a little less. And so he was the first person I reached out to. He said it would be a great idea. So I've been working with him to finish his first book, and then that'll be the first one. And then hopefully that'll lead to, to many more. So that's kind of what my afternoons look like. It'll be interviews with him. It'll be doing research. It'll be you know generating questions that I need to go and find quotes for. It'll be finding case studies, other relevant stories, um, things like that. Very so cool. that's pretty much the daily routine. And then do the health things at dinner and you know, all the good stuff that people like. I, I, I played college basketball. So obviously the NBA playoffs is going on. So I was trying to try to make time for at least an hour of that. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty much what my days look like. Who are you rooting for in the playoffs? I played really serious basketball growing up. Uh, I played with Kevon Looney for multiple years, who's the starting center for the Warriors. I played with and against Jordan Poole for years. My last game, my junior year and my last game, my senior year were against Jordan Poole's team. So I know those two very, very well. Uh, I played against Peyton Pritchard, who plays with the Celtics. I played against Jason Tatum, who plays with the Celtics. I played against Jalen Brown, who plays with the Celtics. I played against Derek White, who plays with the Celtics. So I played a ton of these players, and I just love good basketball. And the game last night was just a great game. So like that was really what I enjoy watching is when two teams that are competing and they're kind of young and kind of old, and it's really strategic. But for me personally, I'm rooting for the Warriors because it's two kids that I grew up with, and one of and Kevon Looney is an incredible, incredible human being. 
not only is he a great athlete who happens to be on probably the best team or the best dynasty we've seen in the past, you know, three three decades, but he is unbelievably humble. He is unbelievably unselfish. Like I can just tell you a quick story. When I was playing yeah, with Devon when we were younger, uh, if I was open and I didn't shoot, he would yell at you to shoot, which was crazy because he would be this top 10 in the country, all American kid who like, you know, you wanted him to shoot. You wanted him to have the ball because you wanted to win. Right. And it was the best opportunity to win was to give him the ball and let him go to work. But he understood even from an extremely young age that to win those games, you needed everyone to contribute. So he wanted, and he also understood if you missed, he was the biggest dude. So he's probably going to get the rebound. Looney was a great teammate, a great person, great guy. And so I'm definitely rooting for him to get his third ring now. You played with Tyler Hero too, is that correct? I trained with Tyler Hero for years. My brother actually trains both of his younger brothers currently. uh, And it's really, really close to the family. And then, but the person that I played the most with, who's no longer in the NBA, his name was Diamond Stone. He was the number yeah. two overall ranked player on ESPN. He was he signed with Maryland, played there for a year, broke the freshman scoring record. He had 48 points in a game. And then he was drafted in the second round by the Clippers. But he now he plays in Taiwan. And we yeah. still talk semi-regularly. But yeah, so yeah, well, crazy, crazy basketball bringing. I'm, I'm in Lexington. So, um, you know, I have a special, special place in my heart for Tyler Hero. So. <laughs> Yeah, 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 sure. But uh, no, very cool. And and thanks for sharing, you know, your your personal routine. It looks fairly similar to mine. I, you know, I have a two year old daughter now, so it's a little bit harder to kind of stick exactly to a routine. I've always been pretty routine oriented anyways. I mean, I was in the Air Force and that kind of dictated a lot of your day uh, anyways. So you didn't have to really plan it out, but it was still very regimented and, and very disciplined that can get a little old if it's, if it's too strict. So today I kind of do more like time blocks. So, you know, for me kind of seven o'clock to nine o'clock is, is kind of time for working out wellness, breakfast, all of those things. So a lot of days I'll go play tennis, you know, two, three times a week. Um, other days I might get on the rowing machine. I'm definitely not, uh, any kind of, of gym rat or anything like that, but I definitely want to stay, stay healthy and stay, stay fit to, to the, you know, the best degree that I can. And then for, from nine o'clock or so to 11, that's like my deep work and writing time. That's kind of when I'm the most focused, I'm the most energized. So I'll sit down either in my office here or I'll, I'll go to a coffee shop that I really like down the road and work for a couple hours, write for a couple hours. Or if there's a project that I'm working on, that's pretty demanding as far as just the amount of thinking and you know things like that, then, then I'll go ahead and dig deep and, and get, get into those things. Then after that, a little bit later in the morning, it's more of my kind of creative time. It's where I spend marketing uh, my business and kind of strategy and stuff like that. And then really from like late afternoon after lunch, basically, that's where I really dig into the financial side. So, you know, that's when I'm doing financial plans for clients or, um, you know, reading economic reports or um, on calls with clients to do, you know, asset management that's, you know, that's usually, you know, three hours of my day um, that I spend doing those things. Mm -hmm. And then really after that, you know, kind of three to 5 p.m. for me is like social time. So that's either in person, you know, going and meeting a friend or a client for a drink or for uh, just to chat or whatever, or scheduling podcasts I I like to do in the afternoon. Then after that, it's it's family time for me. Bedtime and relaxing time in the evening looks totally different um, than it did years ago. So takes a lot more planning. You got to be a lot more intentional about it, but kind of, you know, six to eight is when I have time to play with my daughter, go outside, go for a walk, do all those things, and then get her ready for bed. 
And then I'm weird because I, I like to meditate in the evening. I know most people that I that I talk to are, they rather do it kind of first thing in the morning or, or early in the morning. Uh, for whatever reason, I'm just not, not in the mood uh, when I'm waking up to get straight into that. So I usually meditate kind of as soon as I put my daughter down and then then from there it's it's reading or maybe watching a documentary or or occasionally sports depending on on what's on so fairly similar in a lot of ways so i'd really love to pull on that thread real quick so i'm just curious what is your meditation routine look like what do you like what's your self talk what do you does, you does your breathing change or is it just like a traditional kind of meditation like try to just breathe um it 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 varies um so I, it, I took a lot of coercing to kind of fully believe in and and really understand the benefits of meditating. I kind of grew up thinking it was this hokey, new age, kind of hippie-ish, uh, you know, BS. But I, I had mm-hmm. several false starts in really trying to develop a habit and develop a practice. And really, it's been about a year and a half, maybe pushing two years that, that I got into it. And it started with an app. I was using an app called Balance. And they have a free kind of a free one year trial. And what I liked about balance was it was a, it was really a combination of a teaching mechanism and guided meditation. So it kind of taught the different types of meditations that that people often do, whether it's loving kindness or more breath work. Um, So it kind of helped me figure out what parts I like and what parts I I don't like as much. Um, So that, that, that was very beneficial as far as just helping me understand what meditation actually is versus what I thought it was. And then also it helped me kind of hone in on the things that I think are most beneficial. So typically I meditate for anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes. Usually it's just like on the floor in my living room, but lately when the weather's nice, I actually go lay out in my hammock and go from there. And I'll still play different um, guided meditations from, from balance. Um, And there are a couple other apps. Um, I think happy mind is is one that I think that's what it's called. It was actually based on a on a meditation book um, that I read. That's um, also free. What meditation looks like for me might be a little bit different on any given day, kind of depending on what the objective is, or if I I need a pure relaxing moment, or if um, you know I, I want to reflect on the day or think about the future or, or what it might be. So. Yeah, it's just amazing how many people have mindfulness practices now. And they talk about how, or like everyone talks about now with technology, how every smartphone, every computer, everything is designed to suck you in, you know, more and more. And so it's more important to, you know, be able to take 20 minutes just to breathe. So, yeah, I think it is. And I think, you know, you hear so often people don't have time or whatever, but you think about the ways we all waste time. And I think it's it's well worth the 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes that you can spend each day, no matter what that looks like to, to sit down and have some time for yourself and disconnect a little bit and just have time to think. Well, let's, let's move into the ultimate life formula a little bit before we kind of go step-by-step step through the actual formula itself. I'd like to get an idea of like, what made you think about happiness in that way? Just as, as far as kind of broken down in the way you did and in such a formulaic, more thought out logical approach. Because I don't think many people have done it, and certainly not people your age. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 the origin of it comes from two places, really. Uh, the first place is, if for those of you listening, if you're not aware of who Derek Sivers is, Derek Sivers is the founder of CD Baby in 1997. He sold it 10 years later for $22 million and then gave all that money to charity and basically lives off of a trust in that charity. Um, but he's an incredible human being, incredible writer, incredible mind, uh, incredible entrepreneur. 
And he wrote a blog post a while ago. It probably is, oh God, probably 12 years ago now, maybe even. Um, but a while ago, it talks about comparing the difference between present minded and or present focused and future focused, right? And how we need both. And present focused is me being in this room is like meditation. Let's just use that example, right? Present, present focus is in your meditation. You can appreciate, you know, if you're outside the wind on your face or the feeling of sun shining through your window or just the fact that you're at peace and your heart's beating uh, and you never had to do anything to make your heart beat. It's just doing it naturally. Right. So that's like present focus is really being in the moment and that you, you need that to be happy because if you're always focused on either the past or something ahead of you, it's really hard to be in the present moment and feel real happiness. Um, but at the same time, you need to have some kind of future focus in your life because you want deep accomplishment. We all want some kind of deep satisfaction of either finishing something that's important to us or providing value to more people. Right. So in future focus could be thinking of goals down the road starting a project that could last several years, um, starting a family and thinking about what the goals are for that family, you know, several years down the road, right? So thinking ahead and while at the same time being able to main, maintain some kind of present focused mindset, right? And how both of those are extremely important to both our, the decisions we make on a daily basis and then over our overall happiness in life. So that's kind of where the first idea of it kind of came about, right? Was thinking about those two different types of mindsets. Um, and then the second place was, is Naval Ravikant, who is the founder of Angels List, for those of you who are listening who don't know who he is. I love uh, Naval. Yeah. And Naval is an incredible human being, also another incredible mind. And he th- he talks about how happiness is basically wealth and health combined. He talks about how wealth is, in his eyes, wealth is income plus your return on investment. So basically you're compounding interest over time. Um and then health, he refers to as all kind of the same things like that you would always hear. So like eat health, like your diet, your exercise routines, and then obviously your kind of your mental health, your your emotional health, your emotional stableness, whether that's from being in connections with people or it's from uh, your own self-peace and that kind of stoicism of being able to accept certain uh, outcomes and things like yeah. that. So those are the two places where the idea really kind of originated from. And then I was, as I was working my way through it, I, I kind of put into all the different factors that I think really, really matter today more than others, right? So if we want to start already going into the step-by-step, because step, I'm kind of past that origin story, the happiness formula in my eyes was wealth plus health plus deep relationships, right? So mm-hmm. that's where it starts. And breaking down wealth, the first variable in wealth, uh, I said was personal brand. And I think personal brand is unbelievably important in today's world because social media is not just this place where we communicate with with each other. It's the current state of the internet. Gary Vaynerchuk phrases it that way all the time. And when you talk about social media, like it's the current state of the internet, you have to change your mindset because then you realize that, oh, everything that's going through the internet is going through these channels, right? All your news, all the products, all the monetization, the marketing, all the power is going to people with brands. Right. And how establishing a long term brand through those channels is one of the easiest formulas for success in the world if you can maintain it. Right. So if you can stay in it for a long period of time and you can accumulate because there's so many people online, it just takes it just takes that long that amount of time for people to find you. So if you can maintain it, it's almost a guaranteed formula for, you know, some kind of feedback on whatever you want to produce into the world. And Gary Vaynerchuk is the perfect example of that, how he has 3 million Twitter followers and 13 million TikTok followers and 8 million Instagram followers. Like he could produce anything, 
Mm-hmm. And at least a million people would buy it. And it's all because if he's established this brand of transparency, honesty, kindness, hustle, entrepreneurship, you know, these really positive traits that he's associated with himself that are a part of his brand that people say, I believe in, I like that story. Anything that you do, it's part of my identity. So I'm going to be a part of that too. Right. And that's why his most recent book, that 12 and a half, I think, I think it's titled 12 and a half. And that's just the title. I can't remember the subtitle is it's like the emotional intelligence in business or something like that. But the book sold over a million pre-copies. Like the book wasn't even finished yet and it sold a copy, million copies. And, you know, for those of you listening, if you've never tried to sell a book before, only 5% of books sell more than like 5,000 copies, right? So he was setting records off of just an idea. You know, the book wasn't even made. And I think that is that that alone speaks to the power of just creating a personal brand and creating people that will listen to you and, and that relate to whatever you're kind of talking about. Yeah, I, I agree. And Max, I think this one might be one that's a little more foreign to, to more people because I think there's a little bit of a generation uh, you know, gap that that might uh come up when you ask people like what do you you know what do you think makes up happiness, particularly what do you think makes up wealth? Because social media and and the way you can present yourself and grow an audience online has changed so much in the last even just decade and e- even even more recently than that. So I think some older listeners might not like have thought of personal brand as a key element to to building wealth. But today, where social media and, and the internet more broadly is the the quickest, most efficient, cheapest way to to build an audience um, that that exists. So you know, I, I think that was an interesting place to start in the formula. And I think it's also one that maybe might not be as universally um, kind of thought of if everyone made a list. So I think that's an interesting one. Yeah. And I'll, just, I'll, I'll touch on two more things about that because you talked about this older generation. What the older generation also needs to understand is that there's still billions of people that are coming online, right? There's billions of people that don't have access to this yet that are, that are it's coming. You know what I mean? It'll be here in the next 10 years. I mean, that's the goal. And that's what everyone talks about. So there's still a huge window of opportunity to, for those people to find you. So I think that's the first thing that's really important. And then the second thing is, is for anyone that's in any kind of business, and I think everyone is in the business of trying to find a good career for themselves, right? Everyone is trying to find the career that not only they enjoy, they fulfill, they feel fulfilled doing it, fits their values, but also it's high paying, right? It can, it can satisfy all their needs and a little bit more. And that career building is built more often than not, or most businesses are built more often than not than good marketing or with good marketing. And social media is free marketing. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't have to, it doesn't, it, I mean, Naval talks about how, which I'll get to the formula a little bit later, but how there's, you can leverage pretty much four things. You can leverage capital, you can leverage people, you can leverage code, and you can leverage media, right? And media is basically something that you don't have to reproduce. Once you put a video out into the ether, it's there. People can find you. You don't have to stay up all night trying to beg people to watch it. It's there. And if it's good content, it'll it'll be pushed throughout these platforms without you having to do very much. And yeah. that is extremely powerful. And that's something that I think everyone that wants to create their own wealth and create their own, you know, kind of really stable career position is to develop a personal brand first. And so we'll lead obviously into the second part of that formula. So it's personal brand plus having a platform. And when I say a platform, I really mean three things. I mean, you need cross-promotional partnerships. That's the first thing. So you need to be able to have individuals across the current state of the internet, across social media that are willing to either promote your stuff or, you know, 
relate to your values that you can bring on board into some kind of partnership, right? So that's the cross-promotional part. Uh, the second part is the fans that you have direct access to. So that most commonly today is referred to in, you know, your YouTube subscribers that get notified every single time you post, uh, a newsletter, your email subscribers that you have direct communication with. And the most, probably the newest form of that is probably a Discord community where you have text, you have real phone numbers that you can communicate with people, right? Because it's extremely important when you're, you're starting a business, publishing a book, doing anything of this creative space that you have a platform of around, you know, five, 10, 15,000 people that you can give it to immediately to get feedback on it, right? Because everything that you see in the creative world that exists today is all about faster feedback loops. How do you get iterations of it quicker? And how do you actually satisfy the values you're trying to satisfy? Nothing helps more than having direct customers that you have access to, right? And then the third thing for that platform that you need is a kind of a combination of both, which is so like the first one was cross-promotional partnerships, which is like, you know, people that you can interact with that are a part of your niche or who are already talking to your target audience, your direct customers. And then you need to have direct media contacts. You need to have someone that can put your face or name into something that's more of a public sphere that's got other people that back it. Um, because if you can prove that you're a media darling in business, in investing, in marketing, in anything, not only does that attract career opportunities your way, right, but it attracts all kinds of different projects. Right. Yeah. So when I think of media darlings, and I'm sure I'll get into Peter later, but I think of Peter Diamandis, mm-hmm. right? And if you don't, if you don't yeah. know who Peter Diamandis is, the people that are listening, he's another incredible entrepreneur that graduated from MIT who deals a lot in the space, you know, the space area of entrepreneurship and health side. He works on a lot of uh, not necessarily pharmaceuticals, but a lot of futurized exponential tech companies that deal with how do we improve human lifespans and how do we track health in some of the more elite members of our society. But he is a media darling. He is incredible at building these teams where people are like, wow, how do I get involved with that immediately? How do I invest? How do I follow what they're doing? How do I be a part of that community? Right. And so his wealth has absolutely been attributed to his platform, the networks he has, his ability to get in media, which attracts more connections. And then the people that he has direct access to, the fans that he's accumulated because of his brand and because of his ability to get in the media and things like that. So platform and personal brand are different, but they're still somewhat the same, right? They're still dealing with what the internet is currently at, which is dealing with this massive communication and information machine. Do you want to Yeah, no, I mean, no, I, I think that's great. I think that's a, that's a, that's a good foundation. And, um, you know, I, I love a lot of the names you're throwing out there. I mean, Peter, for example, just did a huge um, kind of anti-aging kind of seminar type thing with Tony Robbins recently. I mean, you mm-hmm. can't go anywhere without hearing his name in some way, shape or form. So um, I totally agree. He's someone who's been able to take his area of expertise and his kind of unique personality and voice and really build a brand and then, and then use, use that brand to, to reach people and kind of build that platform that you're talking about that now, um, you know, similarly to, to, um, you know, someone like a Gary V now he's got the platform. So now you can do anything you want at this point, as far as you can put out, any type of content. It could be a course, it could be a book, it could be whatever it is. And you don't have to try to beg, borrow and steal for someone to take a look at it. You've got, you've got it set up already. So now you can kind of tap into that network of people who, who already trust in you and believe in you and, and, uh, can relate to you. And, and so you're well on your way. So, so yeah, go ahead and, and keep going with, with the, with wealth. 
Yeah. So, so the next one, so this first little section was personal brand plus platform plus the risk you've taken in public. And what I meant by the risk you've taken in public is, I mean, not only the things that are covered by the media, but proof of good judgment. And so what I mean by that, I'm, I think of two stories, really. I think of Jack Dorsey's story about how he founded Twitter and then he almost immediately went to Square, right? And he had already taken this massive social media risk with Twitter in public, right? It was, it was supposed to be this new wave and it really was starting to take off. And he didn't need to pitch much to get investment dollars for Square. It was like, he's an awesome entrepreneur. He's taken these risks. He has really good judgment. He already pulled this off. He can probably do this too. Uh-huh. And so I think of that story. And I also think about the story about Kevin Rose dealing with Jack Dorsey. And for those of you who are listening who don't know who Kevin Rose is, he's the founder of Dig, uh, another incredible entrepreneur. He just launched an NFT project called Moonbirds, which raised like $160 million in a few hours. It was ridiculously successful. Um, but Kevin Rose wanted to be one of the first investors in Square. But the Series A was done. And Jack's like, I can't accept any more investments because obviously, like I said, He's taken the risk. He's shown good judgment. So now investors were fighting to give him more money to do things. Um, and so Kevin Rose obviously is a really well-known investor. He's a really well-known entrepreneur. Jack trusted him and he just needed a little bit more of a push to get into that investment. And what Kevin Rose ended up doing was creating a promotional video for Square to fit on their website. And Jack was like, all right, you're going to help us out. I'll, I'll let you in on the Series A, right? But again, but he wouldn't, if it was me, you know, asking me to do that or asking to do that, or even a smaller investor that didn't have an entrepreneur background where Jack didn't think that he could gain a little bit more value or who had proven they had good judgment in the terms of the media and a social kind of transparency space. I don't think that that would have ever worked out in Kevin Rose's favor. And obviously it was a deal that made him tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars investing in Square early. Uh, yeah. So when I think of risk taken in public, I think about how do you show good judgment through the transparency that should exist in the internet today, because there's so much misinformation, right? There's, and it's only getting worse. There's only, there's only going to, there's only be more deep fakes. There's only going to be more crazy bot accounts and it's only going to get better. So the more transparency you can have and the more trust you actually accumulate through that and the good, the good judgment that you have, then the more wealth is more likely to come your way, whether in opportunities or simply, simply through acquiring greater leverage, whether that's people, capital or code or media. People look at at certain figures, I guess, public figures, particularly um, founders, CEOs that that are successful in multiple areas. And I think sometimes there's this kind of halo effect that people just say like, oh, they're just really great at business. Um, and, and certainly they are to some extent, obviously, or they wouldn't have had that initial success. But the risks you take earlier on, I, you know, those compound as well, just like, you know, invested money compounds. So once you start to do that and you show, you know, you show that you can be successful and you show, like you mentioned, good judgment, then yeah, you can, you kind of have the, the agency now, the ability to, to get people involved and really push something a lot quicker because you've already demonstrated that you can make it work. So, so, okay. So we've got personal brand plus platform plus risks you've taken in public, uh, kind of, uh, make up the first grouping in parentheses there in the wealth part of the formula. Yeah. So that's kind of, honestly, we can just phrase that right now. We'll phrase it almost like it's like the social media or the current state of the internet section of the formula, right? For those three. And the next section is basically deals with leverage, right? And when I say leverage, I think of your ability to make things happen, right? So how you get that phone call, how you get that job opportunity, how you get someone to pay you, right? That's all has to do with leverage. And the first part of that formula is capital, right? So it's how much capital you either have and capital is just money. 
Um, so it's how much money you either have on hand or how much money you have the potential of raising. And when I think about raising money today, there's a quote, I can't remember the entrepreneur's name off the top of my head, but it's in a old book. I think it's in the 1 million one person business by Elaine Pofelt. It's a entrepreneur that lived in a trailer park and she ended up raising like $200,000 for her business. And her quote is no matter who you are today, and it's like, you know, past 2010, who, no matter who you are today, there's at least a hundred grand floating around in your network that you could raise for money, right? Or you could raise for some kind of business idea. So when I think of capital, I think of not only the money that you've been able to save, acquire from income, whatever it is, right? But also the money that you're able to raise, which is what the best entrepreneurs in the world do. You know, there's a quote from Mark, uh, Mark Anderson, who's another famous entrepreneur, who's like, no intelligent person uses their own money, right? So capital is your ability to not only sell either yourself in a job or uh, sell what you're making as a business owner or an artist, entrepreneur, or whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it, or your or ability to sell yourself in terms of raising money. Um, and obviously today, money can be raised in incredible amounts in so many different ways. It can be raised through Series A venture capital. It can be raised through angel investors. It can be raised, raised through crowdfunding. It can be raised through initial coin offerings and crypto. Uh, so capital yeah. is a big part of that formula that can be manipulated in a bunch of different ways. Uh, the next part of that leverage is people, right? And people leverage is the most competed over form of leverage throughout human history, right? They say that the the founder of a company is only as good as their employees that they hire, right? And that's that's so true for a lot of the entrepreneurs that I've had the pleasure of interacting with and obviously all the stories that I've been able to find. Um, and it shows that the team you have behind you is absolutely, you know, it, it just raises the chances of your success. It almost doubles your chances of success if you have a really, really good team behind you. Um, but people today is also the people that follow you, right? Because you have to get someone to follow you. And that in terms of, that's not exactly platform when I say those people that follow you, because today, even just having a couple hundred thousand followers on a certain platform, or on a certain, I shouldn't say platform or use that phrasing, but on a certain account, right, is the credibility you need to make things happen, right? Or to, or to attract attention, right? Which is the leverage you need to get people to either follow you, work for you, uh, or interact with you, right? Right. And the way I think of people leverage to take it the most advantage of it in this wealth formula is you don't ever want to fight over people leverage. You want to attract it. I think of really great stories of people like Robert Greene, who obviously being an incredible writer, got someone like Ryan Holiday to work for him for free, right? He didn't have to hire an incredible mind like Ryan. He attracted that leverage to find a really good mind to work for him. And that obviously helped him produce a bestseller and several later through Ryan's company, Brass Check, right? And that, that happens all the time. That happens with, you know, another good example is a guy named Charlie Hohen, who's been a TED speaker. Uh, I think he's got a small book on Amazon that's got a couple hundred thousand sales. But he worked for Tim Ferriss for free. And obviously, again, Tim Ferriss is somebody who's got an incredible personal brand online. He doesn't do a lot of hiring. The people come to him, right? So right. If you can acquire people leverage, right? It not only improves the chances of success in whatever endeavor you're taking on, but it just helps you It just helps you navigate the world in a totally different way. And that obviously is a huge advantage when it comes to figuring out how to acquire wealth. You know, when you look at companies like Apple and Google and uh, Tesla, for example, the people leverage I think they have that's unique is they are able to hire and attract the absolute best talent anywhere in the world. And 
when people look at the things Tesla and SpaceX were, you know, haven't been able to achieve, uh, Elon Musk probably gets an outsized uh, chunk of the credit there, but uh, he deserves a lot of that. But what he's done has enabled Tesla and SpaceX to hire the best engineers um, and basically hand pick, hand select the best engineers from from everywhere in the United States and really in the world. So that's another form of, I think, people leverage too, if you've already got an, you know, a somewhat mature company is being able to demonstrate to your employees that you want to work here. We have a mission that that you can get behind and that you want to work for and 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 be able to do it that way. So mm-hmm. I think people's probably the most important thing uh, arguably on uh, in the formula. The way this formula is set up for those of you listening to this and can't be looking at it is it's all addition, right? So there's no multiplier in any one thing. You can, if you have any one major amount, right, it'll, it obviously will influence the sum. And a great story for people leverage, like what you just said, for great companies, and especially in the investment space, is Renaissance Technologies or Jim Simon's uh, hedge fund. Because, you know, as a mathematician and as the former head of a math department, he learned how to recruit really, really good talent. And then he recruited all those great mathematicians to basically become quants for him and then develop the best money making machine we've ever seen with, you know, returns making, you know, around 60% a year for like the past 20 years, which is insane. Um, But yeah, that all has to do with the people that he was able to hire and the things that then they were able to build for him. And so let's that those two pieces of leverage in that formula are a little bit different because they're the two pieces of leverage that you have to be given, right? You have, someone has to pay you or you have to acquire money. You know, someone has to give it to you. You have to sell something. You got to, you got to raise it. And people, again, someone's got to follow you or someone's got to listen to you, right? See, those are two things that are kind of unpermissioned. You can't just do them on your own. The last thing in the leverage section of those leverage parentheses is intellectual property. And when I say intellectual property, I really mean things in media or things produced in media or things produced in software code. And so I mean apps, I mean books, I mean videos, I mean films, I mean bots, I mean anything that exists that you can create on your own time, right? You don't need someone's permission to post a video online. You don't need someone's permission to write code for a certain app or certain software application or uh, a certain chatbot or whatever you're looking to do, right? And those areas of leverage are where the most recent wealth has been created, right? Because when Facebook was created, you, to run an ad on Facebook and have that ad run all day, you don't need someone to be a part of it, right? There's code that's made for it that has algorithms written that it's going to run by itself, right? And that's the code side. And then in the media side, you have a perfect example is like Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan's podcast, he has all the copyrights to, and his podcast is about making him 50 to $100 million a year, right? Crazy sums of money that we've never seen before that's all produced on something that you have the choice to make, right? Permissioned leverage, which is code, media, intellectual property, the things you own, right? And those those make up that leverage section where those are the things that really help you make things happen, right? Money may help make things happen. People People help you make things happen. And then leveraging the technology of today through media and code help you make things happen. So that's that section. And then to finalize that first section of wealth, which is basically your income section, because your income is from your brand, your platform, the risks, your capital, your people, and your your property that you own. In that last section or that last part of it is how do you productize yourself is how I phrase it in the blog post. But what I mean is what do you do that society struggles to either learn how to do or do on their own 
that also at the same time is basically fun for you to do. Naval Ravikant calls it specific knowledge. So what is fun for you that society deems either hard or things that you need a pretty extensive education to do it? Um, And more often than not, those things are either highly creative. So writing a book, creating content, producing a podcast, networking, I think, is a very creative thing. Uh, So it usually deals with being creative or it deals with being highly technical. So it deals with CAD design, calculations, investing, you know, all those different things that require, you know, a higher education to, to do that also aren't necessarily fun for a lot of people to do, right? So it's something that you're kind of hardwired uh, to do. And combining that with leverage, and and it's also what makes up your brand. So that's why it's sectioned into that first category of wealth. Right. Kind of rounds all those things out. So I kind of see that piece as just the monetization part. Like, it it doesn't matter if you have a, a brand and a platform and all that stuff, if you're not providing anything to basically make money off of it, to capitalize on it. So- so when I read this, I kind of saw like, okay, there's where monetization comes in. There's where using all those things we already talk about to solve a problem that people are willing to pay for. That's that's kind of how I read that piece. If that's uh, on point, no, that on. that that definitely that definitely because that's basically the end point, right? Is you have this knowledge, and it's knowledge that you can get paid for. That's obviously the ultimate goal: is to either sell something or be paid for the skills that you actually enjoy doing or something that you specialize in doing. So that's 100% right, right. That's the monetization part of that section. The next step of that formula, and the same, this is all in that wealth section, is compound interest. And when I say compound interest, I mean compound interest in everything. I mean compound interest not only in your money, but I mean compound interest in your relationships. And I mean compound interest in your habits. Uh, so you want habits that obviously build over time, whether that's exercising, dieting, meditation, things that take care of yourself, right? That compounds over time that obviously will give you better health in the future. Um, and then compound interest, obviously, in money is a huge, 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 huge thing. Uh, the best example I can think of that is people always talk about how Warren Buffett is this incredibly successful investor, right? He's a multi hundred, yeah. he's a, worth a hundred billion dollars, right? But 99% of his wealth was acquired after he turned 50. And then 97% of his wealth was acquired after he turned 65. So it's yeah. really just he's been around long enough for that money to compound and have incredible returns. Right. So staying in the game long enough is crucial to acquiring wealth. And that's where I think of compound interest is has to be included in there. And that's what I said. It has to be involved in all aspects of your life. You want to focus on how you can compound things, relationships, health and your money. Um, Yeah, that's that's probably my favorite piece in the whole thing, Max. And I write about this extensively, both to my clients on the wealth management side, but also a lot on my personal blog. And it's a big part of how I think about my own decisions Um, because human, the human mind is not designed really to think uh, about compounding. We, we think linearly. Um, It's why we have a hard time understanding how quickly some technologies are going to be adopted. It's why we have a hard time, you know, thinking about, you know, something that's 50 years out because we tend to track things linearly and we can't even imagine the opportunity uh, that actually exists. But I, I think that's that's probably my favorite of, of everything in the entire thing. And, it, and you're right, it applies to everything. It applies to your health. It applies to your, your wealth. It applies to, to the relationships. So it really applies to all three kind of main levels there in the formula. And I think anyone who's wanting to improve anything, just like looking out 10, 15, 20 years, 
that's the most important part because, you know, growth is often slow kind of in those early stages. You know, if you're trying to build an audience, for example, those first couple of years, you might not see a whole lot of, a whole lot of results and you might, a lot of people stop, they get to that point and they stop right before the, the compounding effect uh, was about to start really uh, kind of taking off and, and really doing something magical for them. So that part I think is just critical in every stage. Yeah. And the most critical part about that is, like I said, just time. Right. And that's, that's also what I love about that part of the formula is it's not something that you really need to focus on, like productizing yourself. Like you can focus on getting more skills and something, you know what I mean? Or something, or you can really focus on what you're passionate about. How can you master that and to get paid for it? Right. You can focus on how do you recruit better people and you can focus on how much more money you can raise. Right. But compound interest really just matters of committing to it and then just being in the game long enough for the time to actually happen. So that's what I really like about that part of wealth because wealth isn't always just these lucky breaks that people think or, you know, having a lot to begin with, even though with compound interest, having more to start with obviously helps. Sure. Um, but yeah, finishing off that kind of compound interest section, um, there's valuation. So this one's super simple. We won't spend too much time on this one. It's just basically all the things you own, right? Because we got to have, got to have, find ways to calculate all that. And which I can't wait for with valuation in the future is that you'll be able to have, you know, blockchain copyrights on almost everything. So from posts to, I mean, there's, there's, there'll be crazy things where you can post a picture online and you'll have the copyright to that. You'll have the copyright to anything you write, anything that you record. Um, so those, all those yeah. values will obviously be good calculated into your net worth eventually, which will be really, really exciting to see um, how, that whole web 3.0 kind of changes the way we value certain assets. Um, and then the last one is again, another simple one is just margin of safety and margin of safety is the difference between what you make and then what you actually need to survive. And what I mean by when you actually need to survive is I don't mean, you know, luxury. I mean, just survive your, your, your roof over your head, water and food that like, you know, there's been, multiple books written. There's been multiple psychological studies done that like 70 grand is like that cutoff, especially for people that live in kind of developed countries is once you hit 70 grand, all your needs are pretty much met and it's just what's going to come afterwards. Um, so margin of safety is just that different. So like, what do you make versus what in your eyes do you need to just survive? And for most people, like I said, it's just around that 70 grand mark. Um, but that rounds out that entire wealth section. So just to go through all one more time, platform, personal brand, the risk you've taken in public, the capital you've acquired or you can raise, the people around you, the intellectual property you own, media or code, the way you productize yourself, so what you do better than anyone else, and then obviously those last bits, compound interest, your value, and then the margin of safety that you have. So that's that wealth section. And then we move on to that health, which is something that obviously everyone is starting to worry more and more about because we're obviously living to these later ages and the medical technology is getting better. Our understanding of food is getting better. Uh, our understanding of biology is certainly getting better. So in our, my wealth section, the first thing I had was high resistance training, right? And like I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast is I've been an athlete for a really long time. So I understand that lifting weights is a huge, important part of your biology because you lose strength faster than anything else. Also being an athlete and having going through those phases of how do I get bigger? How do I get stronger? How do I put more weight on my back? You know what I mean? All those kind of crazy fitness things that people get into that also is what I think turns people off from lifting and doing high resistance training, even though it's extremely good for you. So when I think of high resistance training in a health standpoint, um, I think of a person named Peter Atia, who was a former 
endurance swimmer and he's part of the, he's one of the partners in the fasting app zero. He's also got a podcast. That's great, but he wants to start a Sumerian Olympics where each person at each age chooses the lifts that they want to do and they have their own weights set for themselves. And to make this kind of story a little bit of a shorter one, what he's really trying to get after is he wants people working on the exercises they want to be able to do when they're 80 or 90 years old. And that's picking up a a grandkid. That's getting up from the ground, laying flat on your back. How do you do that when you're 90? Right. How do you stretch and be able to tie your shoes? Right. So working on those types of that or that type of strength, those types of muscular movements um, is extremely important to our health and I think our overall well-being, which is why it's in that happiness category. Like, I don't want to be a grandfather who's got a grandkid that I can't pick up because my back's too bad or because I haven't done a few push-ups in a long time. You know what I mean? Or I get winded yeah. walking down my driveway. Right. right. I want to stay consistently active. And the best way to do that is obviously keep resistance on your muscles. Um, so that's the first part of health. The second part in that first section of like staying active is playing sports. And like I mentioned, like I, like I mentioned before on the beginning of this podcast, I was an athlete growing up. So this one is really important to me because not only does it help you stay active, but that part of that community, right? So how it kind of blends into happiness and those deep relationships too is there's a community behind sports and then that competitiveness that I think we all need because we've all had that. We've all been ingrained with that since we were, you know, we evolved into these creatures um, is that we needed to compete to survive. That's what nature wants. It wants competition. It wants survival of the fittest. It wants those kind of things. So sports is extremely important, not only to keep your coordination, keep your activity up, but to have that competitive edge, that mental health that I think we all need. And then that's that form that obvious or that clear source of community. Uh, unless you're playing a sport like tennis or golf, where it's a little bit different. But if you're going to play pickleball, which is super popular now, if you're going to a beach volleyball league, if you're in a basketball rec league, if you're in a softball slow pitch league, right, that community is is very obvious. And it's clear who's wearing your jerseys and who it's not. And that, I think, is something that for our mental health is extremely important. Yeah, we it, we actually just did a uh, – we do a Friends Olympics um, every – well, we were going to do it every year, but uh, that got a little interrupted over the last couple of <laughs> years. But – we just did it um, last or two weekends ago. Um, so it's funny. It's my brother-in-law, Michael, his friends. He's a little bit younger than I am. He's about three years younger versus my friends. So we call it the boys versus the men. And uh, we went away to a, a nearby resort. We did, we played volleyball, basketball, tennis. What am I missing? Uh, a couple drinking games, but that's not yeah. really applicable for the health side. <laughs> but uh, And it was just... Um, it was just a weekend of, you know, healthy competition and, and doing something largely aside from the drinking, largely healthy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really something it's been one of the things I've, you know, hated about growing up is it's just harder to, to find people to go uh, play a game of pickup basketball or, or, you know, go do something, anything besides golf. I hate golf. I think it's the worst, <laughs> worst, the worst sport ever invented if it's, if it's even called a sport, but I'll catch flack for that. But, but yeah, I think it's really important to, to be, be, be active, not just in the weight room and all those things. That's where I need help is the, is the resistance part. Um, I'm getting that age where I'm probably about to see more deterioration muscularly than, than I ever have. So I probably need to pick up my, my game there, but, but yeah, I love, I love the sports part. I think we need to try to incorporate sports more besides watching them. Yeah, no, absolutely. So like, like you said, you know, and that, like to me is not only, like I said, it's not only a physical healthy thing to do, but it's such a mental healthy thing to do. And, you know, in sports for me was how I met friends, you know, and that's still how I meet yeah. friends today. So going to a rec, you know, going to an open gym, going to some league, going to something like that, going to pickleball, 
right? That's still I meet friends. So that, you know, that playing sports bit could also be in that deep relationships part of this formula, but I definitely included it in the health because for me, it's just that huge mental, mental health bit uh, that really helps. The next part of that original kind of activity is obviously your recovery. So how well do you take time off? How well do you learn how to breathe and meditate? How often do you stretch? How often do you, this is more important than almost anything that I bring up all the time to people is how often do you get in cold? How often do you go in an ice bath? How often do you take a cold shower? Uh, those things are extremely important to recovery in the biology of our bodies and what we've kind of been adapted to do. Uh, so recovery is not only that part that has to go hand in hand with resistance training in sports, but uh, it's super necessary for clearly your overall health and how you do everything. And then obviously, if you don't have to take the time to recover, you're kind of sitting at this simmering six, right, where you're not always able to maximize your focus, not always able to maximize your energy if you're always kind of going at the same rate. So I had to find a place to get self-care in there. Um, so I yeah. close it with that section. Uh, I love it. The, the next part of that health section is almost all in kind of going with your diet. And this is something that has definitely come to light in the past 10 years, I would say more than most, which is, you know, how many natural foods are you eating, which is the first one. So that's obviously avoiding anything that's packaged anything that you don't know where it comes from, anything that has to ship from a really, really long way away that has to have a ton of preservatives in it. Um, so the more natural you can get, the more obviously beneficial it's going to be for your health. And that's something that's being proven with science every day. And that's something that's being proven clearly in the performance of some of these uh, people that go to the more extreme levels. Like yeah. there was a documentary produced about four years ago called The Game Changers. That's all about, you know, natural diet athletes and what you can do on a, basically a vegan diet. Uh, and it was remarkable how their blood pressure dropped, their performance went up, their, you know, their sustainability for how old some of them were was incredible. Uh, so obviously eating natural foods is what we're supposed to be doing. And what we need to be doing is as consistently as possible. Along with that meal or that kind of diet health, I have in there intermittent fasting. And for those of you who don't know what intermittent fasting is, it's basically just choosing a window of when you're going to eat every, every single day. And then there's a certain amount of hours where you don't. So a lot of people that do it, they'll do a schedule. They'll do like 16, eight. So like within an eight hour window, they can eat. And then for the next 16 hours, they don't. Some people, it's even slimmer than that. They can go 18, six or 24, um, where it's four hours, a four hour eating window and then it's 20 hours fasting. But again, that is something that's really important, I think, for mental health and physical health, because mentally, if you're constantly eating things, right? There's blood flow that's going away from your brain and into your stomach to die, the process and digest food. So that's what obviously intermittent fasting has been huge in this like highly competitive startup, high finance world, because people want to be at, want, people want this mental edge. And if they yeah. think they can get more blood flow there, that obviously is going to help. But that's also proven with our biology is, you know, we were meant to fast. We weren't meant to eat all the time, which is why we used to send out tribes of hunters to go and catch game. And, you know, they might be foraging on the trip while they're hunting, but they're not eating constantly throughout that process. And our bodies do these incredible things where when we start to lose food or we start to fast, we actually don't start eating away our muscles. We actually start breaking down fats. And that's what ketosis really is, is when there's a certain level of ketones in your, in your bloodstream uh, from a certain period of fasting. So fasting is good for you in terms of mental clarity and how you're not always indulging in food and eating something. And I also think it's really important to be intermittent fasting because, you know, 
not only could we be eating all the time or it causes all these problems with our metabolism, like with, you know, a bunch of cancers are caused because our, our things are always in overdrive. We have so much abundance in the system that things just start to go haywire. It's important to understand that we live in a world where the little devices in our pockets and these computers in front of us are incredible habit reinforcing machines, right? And people get into habit loops with devices the same way as they do with food. So I feel like intermittent fasting is also that great way of breaking away from that, these these habit cycles we get into with food where it's kind of like almost like a love-hate relationship where people love their food, but they're eating it too frequently. They're eating too much of what they love and not the right things. And intermittent fasting just kind of breaks that cycle. So I think that that's really important for health, especially in the epidemic we have with people that are overweight all over our country and all over the world. Um, Last bit of that diet section, which is a little similar to natural foods, but it's eat more plants. Um, And that's something that in the past two years I've, really, really gone heavy with. So I'm not completely vegan for, for those who are interested in what I, how I eat my food is typically around three or four days a week. It's completely vegetarian. If not, it's vegan. Um, and about one to two days a week, I'll do a meat meal. So I'm not completely vegan. I'll never completely leave or meat will never completely leave my life. But when I do eat meat, it's from, you know, a local farm, it's from a farmer's market, it's something more natural that I know I have more control over my purchase. And at the same time, I'm an athlete. I play sports. I compete. I lift every day. I went through a full vegan experiment where I did it for like three months. And for, I know you're looking at me now. I don't look like I can dunk a basketball, but I used to be able to dunk with the ball between my legs. And I hadn't been able to do that or even kind of close to a trick dunk in years. I could always still like get a ball over a rim, but I couldn't do any trick dunks. In the first month and a half, I was vegan. I threw down a windmill in a gym. And I was like, wow, this really isn't just p- people blowing smoke. Like this does something. Like the only thing that had changed was my diet. And it was it was clear physical results. Like I'm an engineer. So I, you know, I mean, like everything I do is studied and like my whole diets were recorded. And the only thing that changed was my diet, and it dramatically changed my physical performance. So after that moment, I was like, okay, there's something to this, more plants, less meat. Right. Let's just figure <laughs> out how to make that a habit. Um so that's like kind of the last section. So again, that diet section is, we'll just reiterate, natural foods, uh, intermittent fast, and then more plants in your diet. The last part of health, unless you want to interject here, this last-, last No, go for it. Finish it off and then I'll, I'll say a few words. All right. The last the last two I had in that formula will have to do with your sleep. And so I've been wearing an aura ring for almost the past year. Uh, Peter Diamandis recommends it all the time. So someone else that we've mentioned in this podcast- and it's just bio, it's just a tracking software. It's just a smart ring that helps track your sleep and things like that. And it's obvious that when you get good sleep, my days are different. And so sleep is extremely important, not only for obviously mental health, physical health, but just your overall productivity, which is like the new craze in the business world or for anyone that's highly ambitious is how do I get more done in a time where we have all these incredible productive tools, but there's less being done than ever before, right? Because there's so many other distractions. Sleeping is a huge, huge advantage when it comes to actually getting things done. And that's making sure you get one of the parts of the formula was how often you get seven to nine hours of sleep a night, which is about what most adults need. And the younger you are, the more you need. So if you're listening to this podcast, I'm 25. So I need probably eight to nine hours of sleep. As you get older, that can be a little bit less. But that's really, really important to keep that consistency. And then the last thing is, is something that I've done in the past few years, which is don't wake up to an alarm clock. Either learn how to program yourself to wake up with light, have some kind of blinds or some kind of auto. Like I've had a Bluetooth uh, LED light for a long time that has an automatic alarm that goes off at 5.30 or 6 in the morning. So I wake up to light or I wake up to my dog. 
Uh, so if you don't have a dog, I definitely recommend like a light alarm clock or something. That's not something that's loud where you're a daughter, a daughter works well too. A yeah, daughter or a kid. A kid absolutely <laughs> would get you up immediately. Uh, but yeah, those things, so your, your life kind of revolves around more of a natural cycle and not these things that abruptly stop your sleep. Because, you know, if you're in deep REM sleep and you get knocked out of it because of an alarm going off, uh, it will affect your rest of your day. It will affect how ready you feel. So that's that last section of health of the training, the diet, and then obviously your sleep in those sections. One thing that kind of struck me, Max, was most of this stuff is not it's stuff we all know we should be doing mm-hmm. I mean, for, the, for the most part. Uh, there might be some, you know, quibbling back and forth on p- parts of the diet or parts of the, you know, training or whatever. But but for the most part, people know they need to be active. They know they need to get enough sleep. They know uh, we all know most of what we need to do. Um, Mm -hmm. it's a matter, it's a matter of doing it for, for most people. And I remember, um, I think it was Jordan Peterson was talking about sleep in particular, which I think is one of the absolute most important parts of our lives in in really every way, physically, mentally, everything. You know, he said that when he was practicing uh, as a psychologist or psychiatrist, whichever he is, when he had someone come to him with some problem, the first thing he would ask him about was how much sleep they get. And most of the time he would send them away out of his office with no prescription, no, um, you need to do anything, this or that, um, no real talk about their upbringing or anything other than get record your sleep and, and, and get X amount of sleep, which I am assuming is somewhere in that seven to nine hour range that you mentioned, which to me is just remarkable that someone who's practicing to help people with mental illness for, for the majority of his patients could do nothing other than help them realize they are not getting enough sleep and that they're deprived and that it's impacting their, their mental health. Um, mm-hmm. That's, that's profound. And, and yeah. I think it speaks volumes to the importance of sleep. Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely wild to have a, you know, someone that deals with those kind of people all the time. And especially in a world where the anxiety level is insane yeah. for you know, younger ages, the millennial ages, Gen Z's around that, you know, that 40 to probably 18 range and younger, even uh, that anxiety level is extreme. So, you know, like you said, if it's mental health is something that we all need to work on or mental health is something that we all need to be aware of. And that little tweak is just a little bit more sleep can make all the difference. And And do you have any thoughts on, because I, I think this section really is just about for me, like it's really about health, which is personal habits, largely. Um, for someone hearing this or, um, I'll post obviously the formula, uh, to the show notes or a link to it. Um, and if they're looking at it, it might look like a lot to someone, particularly someone who's maybe not doing many of those things, um, either at all or, or up to the standard they think they should. Can you just briefly talk about like the best way if someone wants to kind of get started in these, because one thing I worry about with people is like you can easily if you try to make the the leap from from doing All nothing to doing everything, yeah, you're 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 probably going to fail. So, do you have any um, you know recommendations or thoughts on how someone can can implement or work their way towards implementing these things? Yeah, I do. So, I've read you know hundreds of books over the past few years, and the best books I've read on habits are definitely Power of Habits and Atomic Habits. And Atomic Habits is definitely this cult classic blockbuster book now it's sold you know five seven million copies but the bet the, the key takeaways to both of those books is to start as small as possible 
And when I think as small as possible, the best example that always comes to mind is Matt Mullenweg is a famous entrepreneur. He's the founder of WordPress, uh, which is a beta owners company automatic. Uh, he's a billionaire, crazy entrepreneur. When he wanted to get back in shape, he committed to doing just one push-up before bed every night. And that's what started to snowball the habit. So when I think about health habits, when it comes to weight training, I think literally 10 reps in the morning. That's it. That's how you start. If you've never done anything before, 10 push-ups, 10 sit-ups, that's how you start. And you build maybe five reps a week, maybe 10 reps a week, maybe one other exercise, right? And you start as small as you can and you build from there. For the vegan and plant stuff, absolutely, you are not going to change your eating habits overnight. And there's no way. Right. So it's it's one meal a week. It's one less meal of meat a week. Maybe it's not even vegan. Maybe you just choose a salad over a steak one night at dinner or uh, one night when you're at home. Right. Those little itty bitty changes that can dramatically change your eating habits. And then for sleep, for me, it is a small habit of either going to bed earlier, which is just setting a timer for yourself and, and doing something like that, or the small habit of giving yourself a restriction of, let's say, an hour, two hours before bed. There's no more technology. No more. There's no more phone. There's no more computer. There's no more TV. There's no nothing. Because for most people, they're going to get so bored. They're just going to be like, I'm going to go to sleep anyway. Uh, but if you're someone like me or a lot of the friends that I have or things like that, and you want to pick up a book, that book is not only going to settle you down, but it's going to, it's going to, it's going to reinforce that habit of you're probably going to get something that's mentally stimulating. So a little bit pleasurable. So it's kind of that reward in your routine of that habit. And it's just going to help you start going to bed earlier and earlier, earlier and earlier, and obviously avoid the bad things, which are Blue light, social media, distractions, video games, uh, things like that. Emails from work is another huge one, too, that keep people up at night. Uh, yeah. But learning that the world is not going to be on fire if you forget those things for two hours is how that habit kind of develops. When I was talking with William Green, who wrote uh, Richer, Wiser, Happier, he was uh, on the podcast and he was talking about, I can't remember if it was Howard Marks or Bill Miller, one of the very famous investors, um, and just this concept of like the aggregation uh, of, you know, small gains. So you don't need to, you know, if you don't need to go from getting five hours of sleep or four hours of sleep to getting nine. Um, I mean, obviously if you can do that, you know, that would probably be great, but, um, it's, it's a matter of working towards that, um, and just improving over time and, and how important that is. And the, the example was, you know, he said, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not happy with my, my weight. I'm, you know, 25, 30 pounds overweight. I'm going to lose two pounds a year. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, William said two pounds a year. Like that's, that's nothing. Like why, why don't you try to, to lose more? And he's like, I know I can lose two pounds a year. I know it's achievable and I hope to be around, you know, 40 years from now, uh, 50 years from now. So if I do that, I mean, obviously at some point you'd have to stop or you'd, you'd run out of weight to lose, but, um, you know, just taking that long term approach, can really be helpful. You don't have to transform yourself overnight. I'm actually writing on this um, right, you know, right now. Um, you don't have to transform yourself overnight. Do the things you can stick with. Do the things that that will have the most impact. And um, I think this this list here in the health section is a good place to maybe find some inspiration and and take some notes. Yeah, just to touch on that too, I'll just tell one more story. And I think about how that works not only in like the habits of like health, like eating and obviously exercising. But I think that that's really important to take a really important takeaway for big goals too. So Susan Cain, the author of Quiet, you know, a mega bestseller, yeah. when she was first writing it and she turned the book into her agent, I believe it was either the agent or the publisher, and the publisher looked at it and said, "You need to rewrite this entire thing." 
And she said the stress of that was crazy. And she went for a bike ride in the park. And then she said to herself, you know what? My goal is just to finish a book by the time I'm 70. That's my window. And she was like, you know, 34, 35 at the time. And so giving her that much of a window, that 40 years was, it just lifted all the pressure off of what she was doing. And it took her seven years to finish the book, but obviously that was way better than finishing 40 years later, which is what her kind of her goal was. So yeah, those little, those little kind of tricks of just how do I think long-term and don't act like a donkey where I can't eat my hay and drink my water at the same time. You know, you heard that story, the donkey gets stuck in the middle. Yeah. Right. like you you can eat your hay and you can have the water too. You just have to have patience and foresight. No, oh. I love that. And and I'll tell one more. I'll tag on one more here. And it it goes back to the uh and I can't you might know the name. Um the um famous British cycling coach who kind of came up with that 1% uh better every day concept. So, this was ahead of the Beijing Olympics, I believe. Um the British cycling team was not very well known. They weren't um, you know, steeped in historical tradition of winning or anything like that. They were just kind of a run of the mill country as far as when it, when it comes to cycling. So they got it, they got a new coach. Um, I'll look his name up later and put it in the show notes and and some information, but basically the approach he took was not, Hey, we need to start from scratch and, and do all of these things. It was let's find 1% every single day where we can make this better. It went as far as to changing the cyclists handwashing habits to keep them from getting sick. So when other teams, you know, their cyclists would miss an average of five days of training, they they were missing one or two. It went so far as to making tiny, tiny minor tweaks to the cushioning of the bike seat to make it a little bit more comfortable so that the riders were fidgeting less and could focus. They weren't wholesale changes. These were tiny, tiny little changes, but there were many of them and they ended up making an, a huge difference. I think they went on to win seven or six or seven gold medals um, in that Olympics and have, have since been kind of the dominant um, cycling team um, internationally. So you don't have to do everything at once, but if you can find a couple areas where you can start making improvements, it's amazing how quickly and, and the, the ultimate results you can see. Yeah. Peter, Charles Duhigg talks about that in Power of Habits. It's basically calls those like keystone habits, right? It's like if you start doing those little things like cleaning off the sink, it'll just lead to better results or better habits and other aspects of your life. All right. Yep. So we'll touch on that last section of the formula, which is deep relationships, right? And so the deep relationships, again, is addition like all the other ones. The first section is uh, basically your communication. So the first thing, the first variable is how much regular contact do you have with friends, family, key partnerships, you know, network. And when I think about regular contact now, I don't just mean necessarily sending a text. I mean, real regular contact. How long, how often do you see them? How often do you FaceTime them? How often do you hear their voice? Um, How often is it not just a text and then a 48 hour reply or a tag and a tweet or something like that, where it's kind of like this, almost that communication that we're desensitized to now, almost. Uh, I tell my girlfriend that all the time, but she'll tag me and, you know, things on messenger on Facebook. And I'm like, I'm not on, I'm not on social media. Like I'm, I'm ignoring that. Like I got enough going on in, you know, emails and things that I'm working on. I don't need to see more uh, tags that you're putting me in. So that regular (laughs) contact, I think is really important when it comes to real human interaction. And I definitely think, I mean, hearing a voice or seeing a face, I think that's really really important. Again, in that communication part is the communities that you're involved in. That's the next variable and communities. I mean, groups online. I mean, 
communities in your neighborhood. I mean, gyms in the communities that your members there. I mean, clubs at school, right? The things that you can associate with yourself with that you're like, I'm a part of a tribe, which is obviously a huge part of our psychology for our entire existence, right? Which is, you know, if I'm living in a village 10,000 years ago, I need these people around me in case these barbarians come over our wall and try to take, you know, all of our food and our resources and things like that. So we're, we're hardwired to want to be a part of a tribe and a community. So being a part of as many communities as possible where you can still manage it. And then being a contributing member in those communities is also extremely important in your relationships. Uh, So that's why that found a a way uh, as a variable in the formula. And then that last part of communication is kind of the same as regular contact dealing with people more specifically, it's dealing with key partnerships, right? And when I mean key partnerships, I basically mean allies, right? So people that are not only going to talk to you and share ideas with you and bounce things off of, but they're also going to talk you up to their friends. They're going to share what you're working on. They're going to post about you. They're going to, they're going to do what they can to help you in life. Not only because they want to see you succeed because they care about you as a person. Yeah. Right. So those key partnerships are really important. You don't have to have a lot of them, but you do have to have some of them to feel to not only succeed and kind of get to that happy point, but I think to feel fulfilled, I think you need to have at least a few people in your life where you're like, I can really trust them with anything. The key partnerships, you know, jumps out to me. I think we all, no matter where you're at in in your life, I think we all need some, some, some people we can just deeply trust, not, not just on like a surface level and, and have conversations with and enjoy each other's company. Like that's great, of course, but someone you can really have conversations that, that are, that are deep, that get into, you know, some of the problems, you know, that, that maybe, could uh, could grow from small or medium sized problems into into large ones if you're not careful. Uh, someone who can provide feedback and stop you in your tracks when they see you doing something that's harmful or destructive or something that goes against maybe your own values. So just having that, I think, is really important. And it's not always the easiest thing to find because um, that can create conflict whenever somebody says, "Hey, James, you're you know you're being a dumbass right now." Um, <laughs> But um, I, I think it's it's the most most important thing. Yeah. So uh, just to just to touch on that too, this, I think this is an idea that's valuable to share. Um, so part of my key partnerships and how I operate in my personal life is I have a group message of people that I consider you know allies and stuff like that, and they are my what's the best way to put it without using a curse word? They are basically <laughs> the 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 trash idea or they their job. Feel free to curse, by the way. <laughs> There's not a better way uh, to say it. They're just they're the shit on group is what I call them, right? So my job is to give them ideas and their job is to tear it apart every way they possibly can until either one of two things happen. Either one, I'm still so con- I have so much conviction on the idea. I'm like, I don't care what you say. You just took it apart and I still believe it's possible. I'm going to do it anyway. Or they come run out of things to say. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. That probably won't work. So like they're right. like my competitive network. Right. And they're, and they enjoy it. Right. Cause they're my friends and they want to mess with me and stuff like that. But they also like finding uh, the little flaws right? the little things that are wrong. And I think that's also important to have in your allies is how do you have a challenge network that someone that challenges your ideas um, yeah. and finds you either finds ways to make them better or really proves how much you believe in what you're working on. Right. Because you don't believe in it that much. It's only going to take a comment or two. And it doesn't even have to come from a friend, but a comment or two will shut you down or it'll, it'll dramatically change uh, the outcome you're trying to achieve. But if you strongly believe it, a lot of that influence isn't going to do anything. A lot of that noise. 
Um, so that's also how I think about key partnerships is the people that you can be, or they can be really negative around you and it doesn't affect your relationship with them at all. It actually improves your creativity. And I'm notorious for like ridiculous ideas. Like if I think of an idea, I will throw it out there. Even if I think it's bad because I think it's funny sometimes, but, mm-hmm. um, one of my friends, his, his, uh, most common response was like an airplane going down noise. So I, I would like <laughs> tell him like, Oh man, I've got this idea. Like, what do you think? And he would just be like, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, um, I love that. I think it's, it's great when you have people that you can reach out to and, and get honest feedback. And, and like you said, if nothing else, it tests your conviction and because mm-hmm. people are wrong, you know, there, there can be a lot of times when everyone says that's a stupid idea and, and you look back and they're saying, wow, how wrong were we? But at least they made you really think about it. And I think that's, that's worth something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then I'll just, I'll finish off these last little bits of that deep relationships part and then we'll get through the formula. Uh, so the last three variables I have are, are kind of like these, they don't really fit into any one grouping, but they're still a part of that deep relationships, right? And the first one is stoicism, which is basically, for those of you who don't know or are not familiar with stoicism, and I'm definitely no expert, so don't quote me, definitely do your own research if this is interesting to you. It's basically where you can take your life and you can separate it from comparing it to the lives of others. It's being able to accept natural law. It's being able to look at how hard am I working? What am I, what's in control? What's in my, I'm sorry, what's in my control versus who am I comparing myself to? And that obviously is really important when you're dealing with relationships, because if you're, we live in this world where everything is very, very public. Everything is very online. Accomplishments from people your age or younger or doing things that are similar to you are very obvious, right? You can find those things very easily. And it's very hard to not get sucked in to comparing yourselves to others, either feeling less about yourself, feeling like you don't want to try new ideas, or uh, obviously just embracing, you know, this anxiety that you need to either keep up or be in that same caliber of, of, of world if you want to be a participating artist, entrepreneur, podcast, or whatever you want to be in your life um, in terms of working professionally. So stoicism is really, really important. How do you separate what you're doing and just focusing on the best you can be versus, you know, not comparing yourself to others. And then there's love, obviously the love that you can give and the love that you can receive, which I think is extremely important. Not only that, because there's people in the world that exist where they clearly can, they can give love, but they can't accept it because they either have problems with themselves. They either have their own doubts. They have their own issues, right? So love in terms of relationships has to be able to, I can give it to somebody else and I can also receive it. I can receive compliments about myself. I can receive those things and not feel uh, negative, not feel depression, which obviously some really, really ambitious and highly successful people feel uh, when it comes to giving love, like they feel like they've never done enough or they've never, they'll never do enough. They're not valuable. So love both ways is extremely important in that part of the formula. And then the last one, which is uh, one of my favorite ones in the world today is trust and transparency. And what I really mean by trust today, I don't just mean, you know, trusting your friends to not go behind your back. I don't just mean trusting your employer to not fire you randomly without talking to you about an issue first. What I really mean is, is the way that Doug Tompkins, Doug Tompkins saw trust, which is, if you don't know who Doug Tompkins is, Doug Tompkins was the founder of the North Face. And then he sold it and then started the Esprit Clothing Company, which was obviously a multi-hundred million dollar business. Uh, but he never locked his, his house. He said, I refuse to ever lock my house. If anyone wants to go in and break my house, that's fine. But I'm never going to use keys. I'm never going to lock my house. And then there's another really great blog post. I'm pretty sure it's by Tim Urban, where he goes through his bike being stolen because he's never used a lock on his bike. 
and he calculates all the time it would have taken him to lock the bike before he stopped and how much that would equate to like dollars per hour. And then he also added in the stress of worrying about my bike being stolen and locking it all the time. And what he calculated was, was like, wow, this is worth like $10,000. Not only the stress of this, but the time I'm committing to just locking my bike up. So he said, you know what, if my bike ever gets stolen again, I'm just going to buy a new bike. It's worth it. Like I've done the calculation where giving more trust to the world, not only makes me live a better life, a more relaxed life, a less anxious life, but in the finances or in the actual payback in terms of emotional and financial gains and losses, it's worth it. So yeah. that last section to me is definitely, trusting, is definitely trusting the world uh, and giving more the world trust, despite living in a place where there's a lot of misinformation online. There's a lot of things that are going on, but still uh, being willing to be transparent with yourself online and then being able to trust the world in certain situations like that. And the world's not a big, scary, bad place. I uh, I want to touch on the stoicism piece. We have a common interest there. And this this last, really last couple years, uh, as you can imagine, the last couple years has been a good time to take up stoicism. Yeah. Um, but I think stoicism gets a little bit of a bad uh, reputation um, because the word stoic when you're describing someone is often used, I don't want to say negatively, but but just like they don't have emotion. It, it kind of means like lack of emotion or yeah. even lack of response. And over the last, you know, probably 18 months or so, I've read a lot of the kind of major parts of the the Stoicism canon. So I've, met, you know, read um, Marcus Aurelius. I've read Letters from a Stoic by Seneca. I've led, uh, read some stuff from Epictetus. I love the pragmatism. I, I think a lot of philosophy that I've read in the past, it's kind of hard to find the connection to like, you know, modern life and like how it can be useful. Mm-hmm. Stoicism really solves that. I mean, it, it's very easy. I mean, you look at, at Marcus Aurelius, you're reading about somebody's, um, you know, his journal basically um, over 2000 years ago. And you're, and it's like, wow, he was having the same thoughts and troubles and concerns and worries that I am today, uh, 2000 yeah. years later in a totally different looking world. So that, that really hit home with me. And, you know, one of the things I tell people about stoicism, it is, it is in no way, shape or form, some lack of emotion or, or anything like that. Um, it's more of a, of a control of your emotions and to not let things that happen in your life kind of snowball into, into worse problems and to not let the worries and the anxieties of your mind become reality or impact reality. Um, you know, Seneca, I think said, uh, we often suffer greater in, in imagination than in reality. And I think that's so true. And it's really important. I bring it up to my clients occasionally because they're saying, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? You know, am I going to be okay? Is my money going to be okay? And of course, the answer in a lot, a lot of times or almost all the times is I don't know. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but I do know that, you know, here's historically what's happened. And here all the times people have, uh, you know, concocted some idea of, of, the end of the world or whatever it is. And, and it hasn't come to fruition yet. So I think stoic philosophy is, has really helped me be a better investor. It's helped me be a better financial planner. It's helped me be a better dad to be able to, uh, be more patient, to not worry so much about my daughter, um, in a lot of ways and to take things as they come and, and not let them impact, you know, if something were to happen to me, bad market day to day, you know, how silly would that be if I were to go home in a bad mood and, not fully enjoy my wife and my daughter. I mean, that's, 
a total waste of, of life. And, you know, one of the key elements of stoicism is about living in the moment. You touched on that um, early in this, in the discussion, you know, we don't know how long we're here. We're all going to turn to dust at some point, And our moment is very brief and to spend time angry over something like the, what the market did today or, or someone cutting me off in traffic. It, it's, it's a waste and it doesn't, it doesn't harm them by me getting mad. It only harms me and, and the people I love. So um, I really think stoicism can be useful, um, not just as like an anger management thing, but just a life management and really keeping things in perspective. So I was very happy to to see that made the cut there in the in the ultimate life formula. Yeah, well, I think I think you hit the nail on the head of, in terms of today by saying, you know, not letting your anxieties in your head become the realities of what you're dealing with. Um, which is, I think is extremely important because I think there's so much, you know, lack of action. There's so much, you know, there's so much anxiety that's causing these, you know, these crazy or these crazy, you know, mindsets of resistance, right. Where it's, it's hard to do things. It's hard to not be angry. It's hard to not be over emotional. It's hard not to get sucked into this argument or this thing on the news or whatever it is. Right. And like, like you said, like, it's not affecting, you know, it's just affecting the people around me. It's not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in control of what's happening in the world, but I can, I'm in control of what I can do and how I interact with the people around me and letting those emotions get out of control is, is obviously not beneficial for me and it's not beneficial for them. So I think that was a great way of putting it. Well, thanks for taking the time. I mean, obviously that, that went a while, but I think it's, it's well worth it. And I think, um, the biggest takeaway for me is, and it's been something I've, I've kind of grappled with and thought about a lot over the last couple of years, everything's interconnected. I mean, it's hard for you to become wealthy from a financial sense if you are unhealthy um, or even if you are able to get wealthy, it's hard, you're not going to be able to enjoy your wealth as well if you're, you're having physical or, or mental um, problems. And, and if you're having mental problems and physical problems, you're not gonna be able to enjoy your family and your deep relationships as well. So like all of these things are intertwined, you know, intertwined and, and entangled for me as a financial advisor I think that's another way I can kind of provide value, right? I mean, I can have discussions with my clients about their mindset on some of these issues and maybe help them get closer to happiness, maybe maybe not even by growing their wealth necessarily, but by helping them in other areas. So yeah. I think that's just so, so kind of foundational and, and just really important. So I think it was a cool way to tie it all together. Um, and, and kind of put it into a formula. And I think it's something you can like continue to work on for the rest of your life and, yeah. and tweak. And because how, how old are you, Max? I'm 25. Okay. So, so, you know, you're going to, uh, you know, your life's going to change uh, a whole heck of a lot. And I think that's really cool that you've already set this foundation up for yourself and set some standards to live by and some values. So I give you tons of credit for that. I think it's really cool. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, well, we, we've, we've taken a lot of time, so but I do want to cover, uh, do a couple rapid fire uh, things if you've got a, if you've got some oh, time. Go ahead, knock them out. All right, so I know, I know you're an avid reader. You've already thrown out, um, you know, quite a few books. Um, why don't you give two that you would recommend to, you know, maybe someone around your age, someone in the mid to late twenties, um, to read, and I'll throw out two as well. Okay. So the two books that I almost always recommend uh, to the people that are my age are the first one is always tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. That book set my life off. Like 
good books and good films and good art have this ability to really set people's lives in different motions or in different kind of paths and Tim and tools of Titans was that for me. Um, so it's all yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. It's based on his podcast. It's got, every, it's got something for everybody, which I love. And I think it's really important to see uh, for, especially for people my age that either just went through college or that are going through college to see the entrepreneur or the business MBA where Tim does it himself and doesn't go to school and it's really important to see, obviously, those three sections, the healthy, wealthy, and wise, and all those incredible people. Um, so that's a book that I definitely always recommend to non-entrepreneurs. I would say the other best book for creatives in general, and I think anybody in their jobs, is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. That's another one that I recommend to everybody. There is some magic in those pages. Uh, it's, it's written where it's like this crazy dopamine release. Cause as a reader, obviously when you finish a chapter, you feel really good, right? That's like the whole point of reading is finishing sections and it's written really, really short. So you finish it, you can finish it in about an hour, two hours, and it's useful for a lifetime. So the war of art and tools of Titans are two books that I always recommend to people. Well, that's good. I haven't read the war of art. I've certainly heard of it, but, um, I'll, uh, move that one up the, the, the priority list there. Yeah, um, that's a, that's a classic. And I'll give two, um, I'll go back to the stoicism and I won't say much on it, but meditations, I think is a good one. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's short. It can be read in a lot of different ways. Um, it's broken up into small sections. So you can do it that way, or it's kind of broken up into like, almost like verses. Um, so you could actually just kind of open it up and, you know, find a, a, a sentence or a couple sentences that, that speak to you, um, for that particular time. Some people do it. They read like one little, uh, you know, stanza basically, um, per day. So that's kind of a cool, cool way to go about it. But there's just so much in there that could be helpful. And the other one is one I read really recently last month. Um, and it's called when breath becomes air. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but not. the author is Paul. It's like, I'm going to butcher his name. It's like Nilatali or something like that. I remember but, that title though, when breath becomes air, that's definitely intriguing. Well, I've never cried so much um, during reading a book as I did with this one. I mean, I literally was in tears for like 45 minutes straight um, on, on the last book, part of the book. Move your emotions like that. It's it's incredible. And uh, I'll, I'll give a very, very brief synopsis. But essentially, it's a, a young neurosurgeon who's top of his class at, at Stanford and um, doing some amazing research and, and all of these things and is um, you know married and uh, to another brilliant person and they've got this incredible life ahead of them. And he's diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Um, at I think right about my age, which is, which is probably why it hit me so hard. I think he yeah. was 35 or six when he was diagnosed and he started writing the book, basically not knowing how long he would live. Um, so it's a, a memoir that, that he wrote. Um, and it's really just, um, a beautiful kind of touching book that makes you think about, you know, how uh, fleeting life can be. And it makes you think about your own mortality. And um, and I think it's important to think about your own mortality so that you can think about your own life a little mm-hmm. bit better. So really profound, beautiful prose as well. I mean, he's a, he's a f- just amazing writer, which is incredible from someone who was uh, such a brilliant doctor as well. Um, so just a, a beautiful book. But Get get the tissues or or the handkerchief handy because it I mean it is it is heartbreaking in a lot of ways but but beautiful. That's uh, added to the list. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, and then I just want to give you an opportunity really to talk about some of the things you're 
you're focused on, you touched uh, on the publishing company. Um, you know, one, I kind of pulled this from, from your, your site that you have three things that are kind of your long-term focuses. Um, and those are education, environment, and employment. Um, feel free to kind of touch on each of those and, 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 and then also just anything else kind of that you're working on that you think the audience will find interesting or that you'd like to, uh, you know, you know plug. Okay. So, uh, I'll just touch on those three things first. So the three things that are the biggest part of my mission, right? So like my mission is life is to develop a community, a network, and the skills to produce really disruptive books and companies that change the environment, that change education and change the corporate structure. Um, so when it comes to the environment, I've always been a huge environmentalist. I've done environmental engineering work, um, always been a big outdoors when it comes to fishing and tracking and hiking and all those kinds of fun stuff. So a huge part of my life is how do I start projects and do things that are beneficial to the wild? Um, and I don't know how deep you want me to go into this stuff, but part of my personal life is I, I grow as much food as I can. I've got tons of plants out in my, in my condo and stuff like that. Um, and then on my business part of my life is, um, the main project right now is I started with two other, my graduating engineers, which are, my, I won't mention their names in case they don't want to be mentioned. Um, but we are working towards a nine week program that brings entrepreneurs together to basically work towards one specific environmental challenge and see how many either ideas or what companies or products we can come up with in that amount of time to benefit the wild. Right. And so that's something that we've been working on for probably the last only a few months now. Um, but something that is really, really important to me and really important to us is how do we rewild the world? And what I think is really important about that right now is that based on the science that we've seen is that it's extremely possible to rewild the life, the rewild the world in my lifetime. Right. Which is really important for, you know, obviously my generation, which is the Gen Z's and every generation that's beyond us. But it's really important for like my kids and my kids, kids to have this window of opportunity to bring back this natural world in almost a way that I've never even seen it. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the things that is like my main focus. And that's whatever I work with startups. Like I've worked with Indie Dwell, who's a tiny home company. I've worked with uh, a couple other startups and consulting and stuff for social media. And almost always it has to do with, um, environmental engineering has to do with some kind of environmental work, something that's sustainable. So that's, that's a huge part of my life. Education. I'm somebody who is extremely ready for the new education revolution, <laughs> which is going to come when, you know, we have different kinds of AIs and we have different kinds of learning methods that are more equipped to what we have to deal with now, because, you know, I went to college and, and I, and I loved moments at college, but I also hated moments at college because I realized that I was sitting in a classroom learning about something that I wanted to be doing, right? And some of that time, I felt like that I should have been doing and testing and experimenting and really interacting in the real world. I was sitting in a classroom because it was what you know society had told me to do, what my parents had told me to do. And at the time, it was something that I was still struggling with to kind of comprehend, you know, do I stay with this good degree or do I kind of branch out and do some new things? So when it comes to education, I think about how... I can get involved in the exponential technologies that are going to dramatically change education. And those technologies mainly are artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality. Uh, and I say that I think those are probably the big three. We'll stop there. But I think about how in the future, you know, when you're having a field trip at school, you won't have to physically go anywhere. You'll put on a VR headset and you'll go to the pyramids of Giza. You'll go to, you know, historic or historic site in Europe. You'll go to, a mind. You'll, you know, you'll learn in real interactive ways that I think are extremely valuable. So I think about a lot of ways that I can either manipulate things in the metaverse, which is the closest thing we have to it now, 
um, and building education that way? Or how do I just contribute to AR or VR technology, whether that's working with different companies that way, consulting in social media, trying to find ways to develop technologies like that myself, um, things like that. So education is extremely important to me. And I also understand that the way that we're educated now needs to change because the jobs are going to completely change, right? Everything that you're being educated for now is still kind of that pumping out factory workers, you know, two plus two equals four, finish the mad minute math in a certain amount of time, turn it in, whoever gets the most right is the winner. Right. Instead of actually learning the material and then how do you apply it in practical ways that actually help the rest of society, which I think is going to be really, really interesting when like AIs, because I just wrote a post this morning about how, you know, in the future, when we all wake up with AIs, these AIs will have, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of books, studies, documents, blog posts, websites, written, like, you know, memorized. And they'll be able to give you a list of all the best insights and then how you can actually approach those in, pl- in practical ways to your real life. So education is really important to me. How do we change that? How do we get people to stop going to college unless they're sure they want a really technical degree like law, engineering, uh, high finance, or I would say medical, anything else I feel like you can really kind of explore on your own. So that's another really big thing for me. And then corporate structures. So the self-employment market is what I, what I call it. And you can call it the creator economy. Uh, It's been called a bunch of different things, but basically all I do And what my book is basically about is how we live in this environment where you can create not only companies in a very short period of time, but you can create lump sums of income in a very short period of time that can set you up for, you know, several months, years or so of continuing to work in this kind of employment. And that can work through freelancing, that can work through licensing, that can work through a a bunch of different ways. Um, So everything that I do, I either do to help entrepreneurs in the self-employment economy. So how do they start ideas? How do they get from step one to step, you know, 0.1, the smallest things possible? Uh, Or how do I get people to start thinking of their passions in terms of something that they're uniquely designed to build a business around? Because that's what the internet is nowadays. They say for every job that's taken in the physical world, two more pop up in the internet world. And then for every two that pop up in the internet world, four or five will pop up in the virtual reality space. So it's really important to understand that we're not going to be working in these typical corporate structures anymore. It's going to be a very different way of interacting with people and interacting with the ways that we receive income or receive, or we pretty much present our value. Um, So I'm really focused on how do I present, how do I present social media content that helps people like that? How do I start companies that help people like that? Like lazy boy is a perfect example of that, that self-employment economy of how do I get really, really, really good YouTubers, content creators, TikTok creators who have really good information to branch off those streams of income and create different forms of media and really start to build a brand and build products that can sustain them through their own self-employment or through the things that they're interested in doing. Right. Right. So those are the three things that my life revolves around. Those are like my three biggest missions in life. Those are the things I think I'll always continue to do. Um, And I'm happy I found those three things early and it, and I'll attribute all that to journaling constantly, always checking in with myself and always asking myself questions of like, what do I want to do? What do I, what am I uniquely skilled at doing? And then what does the market really need right now? Um, and I think yeah. those three things are huge. I think that's wonderful. And I'm particularly excited about the educational piece because, you know, you, you think about these things more when you do have a kid and, you know, things like, I don't know if you've looked much into like synthesis school that was... Um, created, I think, by some former SpaceX employees. And it's basically this kind of online program. I think you have to be, I think it starts at six years old. 
but it's this really kind of novel way of getting kids from all around the world, um, some of which who even speak different languages and everything, to work together to solve these complicated but but solvable, even at a young age, problems. And you can actually get on and watch these demos, and it's mind blowing to watch these young kids, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year olds, like working together online, like on a basically on a on a Zoom call to solve these really cool um, kind of tech driven problems. And yeah. I just get so excited about the opportunities that, you know, my daughter's going to have and, um, and that kids everywhere are going to have eventually. Um, and, and I think that's really, really going to be something to, to kind of watch over the next 25 years. No, that's, that's extremely exciting to hear because you know what they, you know, what the world really is, is it's, it's not doing math problems or regurgitating information. It's how do you solve problems in a community of people or with a group of people? So that's extremely exciting to hear. And I will definitely look into that myself. Yeah, it's a very cool program. Um, cool. But cool. Well, we, I normally ask two questions at the end, but we kind of already covered the what does wealth mean to you gotcha. <laughs> section. So so we'll skip that one. The second one you kind of ruined because you're too young to really ask. It's normally, what would you go back and tell, you know, a 20 to 25 version uh, year old version of yourself? So I'll just rephrase the question a little bit. What is the one piece of advice that you received that you think has helped you the most or been the most beneficial to you? The most beneficial advice that I've received and do you want me to, do you want me to quote someone that's specifically given it to me or just advice that I've found through different mediums? Either way, it doesn't have to be. Um, yeah, it could be through, through a book or through whatever. So the, the best advice and the one that I still think about all the time today is Derek Sivers wrote a blog post called The Standard Paces for Chumps. Um, and that is probably the biggest piece that I've taken in the past four years is that you don't have to do these things step by step by step by step. You know what I mean? You don't have to go through, you don't even have to go through college as a freshman, a sophomore, junior, senior. You can get enough credits and you can graduate in two years or less. You know what I mean? It's really not that hard. And you can do it in taking summer classes and doing AP classes and all these different things, right? So that's like the first example. But that is definitely something that I've taken in all aspects of my life is how do I not go the standard pace? How do I not take things for granted and go slow? How do I make exponential steps where they're really, really compounding and building on each other? Or how do I just skip steps entirely and kind of do these, you know, these diverse paths to get to the goal that I want? So that's something that is one of the biggest messages in my life. The thing that I always remind myself is that I don't need to go at the standard pace. There's always a faster, better, easier way to do some of these things. Um, I love that. Yeah. So. And I I love Derek Sivers. I think he's, he's phenomenal. Um, Yeah. He's a great writer too. Oh yeah. He's a great human being. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, that's all I have, Max. Uh, Where can people find you? Uh, people can find me anywhere online under my name. So maxwellwojcik.com, social media is Maximus to himself on across everything. So Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Uh, I have a blog, Maximus to himself, and and then my company, lazyboy.com. You can find me there. So those are the three things that I would use to locate me. Just Google my name and it'll pop up. Well, very cool. Hey, thanks for, thanks for joining me. And uh, I think you're well on your way. So thank uh, you for having me. It was really fun to do this again. All right, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Max. See ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe or follow the show so that you'll be notified when new episodes drop. You can also help grow the show by rating it on your favorite podcast platform and sharing with anyone you think might find it valuable or entertaining. We've got more great guests lined up. So until next time, cheers. Cheers.